Welcome to Pottery Visited, episode 53. I'm Tori. And I'm Shay. Today we are covering chapter 16 of Prisoner of Azkaban, Professor Trelawney's prediction. Or, as we like to call it, the injustice of the justice system. So we ended off the last chapter with Harry winning the Quidditch Cup for Gryffindor, and he's super pumped, and the kind of the excitement lasts a whole week, but then, you know, exams are happening, so. Yeah, reality hits hard. He talks about all he wants to do is sit on the grounds and drink iced pumpkin juice. And what what is the thing with pumpkin juice? This is what I think. I think because it's a cutesy kids book still, like it's still for the younger readers, witches and wizards are still deeply connected with Halloween. And I think they're like, because for like this level of reader or this generation of people, maybe like a culture of what wizard is or magic is hasn't really been established. So the author leaned a lot on Halloween because that's something people already associate with witchcraft and wizardry. So she's like, what else is Halloween-y and therefore wizardy? Oh, pumpkins. Okay, they're going to drink a lot of pumpkin juice. They just love the stuff. Is that something people do in real life, though? Drink pumpkin juice? I don't think, like, I love pumpkin spice. Not just pumpkin spice lattes, but those are delicious. But, like, I have pumpkin spice in my spice rack, and I'll, like, put it in my coffees. I'll mix up and boil a tea with it. I'll make pancakes. Pumpkin spice pancakes with apple is so good. Or, like, pumpkin chocolate chip muffins or cookies. Like, but just pumpkin juice? Like, it doesn't appeal to me necessarily as, like, the ideal flavor. Because, like, pumpkin spice isn't actually made of pumpkin. It's just, like, a seasonal... So, like, actual pumpkin is not delicious. Pumpkins are generally kind of bland. Yeah. The pumpkins you're supposed to cook with aren't even the same as the pumpkins you carve. So, like, they're kind of separate things. I don't know. But I understand that it's, like, leaning on an existing culture of, okay, we'll just borrow from Halloween because I don't know what wizards like yet. But it's exam season, which is terrifying, even though I have not been in school in, like, eight years. (laughs) Exam season or anxiety season? <laughs> They're both the same thing. But uh, Harry and Kyle are kind of running. They're like, they do an exam for each of their subjects. But uh, Fred and George are writing their owls. And Percy's writing his newts this year, which is a fun little, like, look into what Harry is going to be doing later on. Yeah. So I guess in the other, like, um, the specialized testing is in, I believe it's fifth year and seventh year so those are like the two main testing years but besides that it's just like you get marked on what you've learned that year by each teacher in each class just to show that you've learned stuff and you can progress but the newts and the owls are more like standardized testing so like to me the newts are like the SAT for Americans, sort of like one test that covers everything you should learn that gives future employers or colleges or universities an understanding of where you stand that's like standardized so they don't get confused between which schools taught which things, which schools didn't. Like, it's just, this is the test. We can judge you based on this test. Everyone gets this test. So I think that's probably how the newts and the owls work. But it's interesting because, like, the newts make sense at the end of school. But the owls are just kind of, like, in the middle. Like, to me, the owls... I feel like it's, like, kind of prerequisites to get into certain classes because Harry needs certain marks to take certain classes the following year. Yeah, and maybe like to get into like... It's more like specializations into like what you want to do when you leave school. So you're, the, the grades you get in that exam determine what classes you can take and then those classes you take determine what, I guess, career options you have when you leave school. Like it mentions that Percy needs top marks to get into the ministry. Yeah. 
But uh, what is what is universal is that exams suck. The fact that they have two exams in one day, and the only amount of time they have between the two exams is their lunch break. Like, I almost feel like I need to focus at one thing at a time. There's only so much room in my brain. So, like, until I'm done one exam, I can't fully be prepared and focus on the next exam. So, like, I would absolutely do horrible on my second exam because the only window I have to just put it in my brain alone, that information, is so small and it's even worse when you think that their astronomy exam is at midnight and then they have an exam again the next day in the morning so like I go to bed at like nine (laughs) like I'm in bed at nine if I had to be up at midnight for an exam I'm sleeping till noon the next day and that's that that's crazy yeah I feel like it's hard because like the way we did exams but we were also in a semester system so we only had four subjects per semester so you only did four exams at the end of that semester, and there were only one exam a day, and usually they were kind of spaced out. Yeah. So you only had to focus on one subject each day, which which was nice, but they have to do two a day, and then Hermione has to do four a day. Which is madness. Absolute madness. Like, I know she's smart, but wow, that's too much. It's too much. I would cry the whole time. Yeah, I feel like it should be spaced over at least two weeks just to give them, like, breaks to revise and stuff, but, you know. Hagrid sends them a letter. Uh, letting them know that the ministry's coming to do the appeal at Hogwarts and they're bringing an executioner and Ron and it's like kind of upset because he's done all his work for the appeal and like it basically seems like they've already decided they're going to kill Buckbeak if they're bringing an executioner. Yeah, it seems like you can't even like accurately judge an appeal if you already have like in court cases usually you determine guilty or innocent and then you determine the sentencing. It's like doing the sentencing in the jail cell. It's like you're already going to be in jail. This is just a formality. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like saying, "Okay, you're going to find out if he's guilty and sentenced to death or innocent." Like in that moment, there's no like shades of gray for sentencing even if they continue to find him guilty. There's no like He has to pay a fine or he has to go to hippogriff prison for a few years or do some hippogriff therapy or like hippogriff restraining order. It's hard seeing like them being kind of faced with like the corruption because it's like their first kind of like experience, which is like the ministry doing things. And then Ron's just kind of being like, this isn't justice. And it's not. But that's just the way the world is. Governments are corrupt. It's very much that childlike sense of wonder of like people whose jobs it is is to take care of us and protect us will always take care of us and protect us and have our best interests at heart, which is just not the reality of the world. But there's such a like childlike sense of like belief in those institutions. Oh, alas, their their rose colored glasses have fallen off. Now they're all jaded like us. <laughs> but uh, Draco has been kind of like, you know, a bit uh, quiet because of his loss at the Quidditch game. But now he's kind of back to being his old stupid self because he is excited that Buckbeak's gonna get killed. He's kind of sociopathic. Yeah, he's like, I'm totally over sucking at sports because I'm so cool, I got an innocent animal killed. So cool. Yeah, I do find the way that Mel- like, Malfoy's just being, you know, annoying and Harry's, like, taunting Malfoy but imitating Hermione slapping him. Yeah. A little, a little, a little bit of gold there, but Malfoy, yeah, Malfoy really sucks. Yeah. So the book goes kind of into detail about all the different exams they, they go through, which is kind of fun. The charms exam, I take a bit of an issue with the way they do it, because one of the spells they're tested on is the cheering spell, and they do it on each other, and, like, Harry 
goes a bit hard with the cheering spell and Ron gets the giggles and he's like sit in the quiet room for an hour before he can do the exam and I'm like it takes me a long time to like get in the headspace to write an exam if I'm supposed to write the exam in 10 minutes and someone else's spell puts me behind by an hour I'd be so stressed and like what if something really bad happened what if Harry really screwed up the spell and Ron was projectile vomiting slugs or something like it seems like that is not the way to do it. You're putting a lot of faith in your uh, peers. Like, Neville is great, but Neville also isn't the best at spells. So would you trust being partnered with Neville during exam season? And it's just like, it shouldn't be for students who are about to write an exam. Like, it almost, this might sound a bit weird and cruel, but like, an interesting learning experience would be if they do this spell on first years and it's part of the first year's final exam to like see how practical exams are done because your first year you've never done a practical exam before and Chimes is the first one that at least the third years are doing so it'd be interesting for them to have the experience of like okay this is what it is you're one-on-one in a room with a teacher or you're in front of the whole class and like I think that would be interesting because then the other person is like learning something and it's like a baby step towards them having to do practical exams of their own but also like if that's their exam they don't have to go and then write that exam after or perform that exact spell. It's just the experience of like understanding how the exam process works. That would be interesting and benefit both sides. This seems like it's it's rough luck for the students who go second. Oh, I didn't even think about doing practical exams in front of the whole class. That's just a whole nother issue for me. I would throw up. <laughs> I think we would both. I think the way they do it in fifth year where they have examiners, I feel like that's the way all exams should be done. But like by the teacher, like doing it everything one at a time for practical purposes, because you don't want to be doing it in front of an audience. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the potions exam, Steve's just like, you know, glowering over Harry, like staring down, down at him while he's trying to like work on his potion. I'm giving him a suck point for that because... Like, like I said about like performance anxiety or just like the idea of other people watching you during like a very stressful exam, terrible. Yep. It's literally like so much harder to think about what you're doing while someone's staring at you, especially if it's someone you're already intimidated by. Like I can't think if someone's staring at me because now I'm thinking about what they're thinking. And like, oh, he thinks I'm going to do it poorly. Oh no, what if I do do it poorly? Like I spiral so much. Like I can't even productively work in office. I work so much better from home because if there's people sort of staring at me or if I think someone's staring at me, I get so in my head about it. I can't focus on my work. Yeah, definitely. Because anxiety. Because <laughs> anxiety. This whole episode is just us reliving anxiety from examinations. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it does show something though that Harry and Neville both do a lot better with potion stuff in like the owls because they don't have Snape like you know staring at them the whole time. It does help teach them how to cope under pressure I suppose. But uh, I think the best exam is Lupin's practical exam. Oh hands down it's so fun to me it's like an obstacle course of different creatures. I think that's so neat. But it's also showing I think his way is demonstrating what they learned it's not just like memorizing like facts and stuff like Hermione does it's actually putting it into you like it's practical it's super practical and I feel like that's like the best way to learn especially for defense against dark arts and also this is probably like the only time they've had like an actually decent teacher so far and it's nice because like it teaches them it not only shows that they know how to do it but it shows that they know how to do it like in the moment kind of like they can't prepare for it ahead of time they don't know which creatures they're facing or which like dark arts events they'll have to counteract on the exam so it's kind of like 
not just testing what they know, but testing if they can do it when not expecting that certain thing in front of them. Like they're quick thinking, fast on their feet, which makes sense to me in like a combat course, kind of. Like it's defense, but it's still defense is part of combat. So like, it's interesting that they do it like that. I feel like the only part that like would stress me out is like that it's done as one long obstacle course kind of. And I feel like I'd get really rattled if I took longer than I wanted to or struggled with one of the earlier ones. It would rattle me more for the later ones, even if I was better at fighting those creatures. I'd be like, oh no, I screwed up so bad with the hinky punk. How am I ever going to fight the Bogart? Even if I'm great at Bogarts. But I feel like that's just a me thing and no exam will ever be perfect in my mind. But like, generally speaking, it seems cool. It shows how... This is kind of where Harry's excellence in defense against dark arts kind of like comes to light because this is a practical test and Harry is great at thinking under pressure, just kind of like acting and reacting, just very resourceful in that that point. And that's where he actually, it does better than Hermione because it's practical and it's just like real life experience where Hermione is just very book smart and she kind of loses her cool because Hermione can't think on her feet under pressure very well. So this is kind of where uh, it shows Harry's just kind of like really good at this. I feel like Harry has really good like reflexes, like not just in sports, but in real life. And I don't know if that's just like, like I have terrible reflexes, for example, but I feel like, like if someone threw a ball at me that I wasn't expecting, I might block it, but there's no way I'm catching it. But Harry's totally catching it. And I think that's a big part of like combatant magic is like not only is something unexpected coming at you, but he has, his brain is able to like slow it down long enough to identify what it is, think about what potential solutions there are and select one where I'm just like, ah, a thing, you know? And I think that's like, a big part of Harry is his, like, quick reflexes with magic, but with all things, sort of. Yeah. Hermione needs to weigh the pro and pros and cons, I think, too long when it comes to making certain decisions. She wants to make, like, a list. I'd be like, if I try this, these things could happen. If I try this, these things could happen. This is the fastest way, but this is the most impressive way. Will I get bonus marks? Like, I feel like all those things go on in her mind, and Harry's doesn't do that. Yeah, so like, like you said about getting kind of, like, rattled, by something. I feel like Hermione also it does, does happen to her when she faces the Bogart. She freaks out because it's like it turns into McGonagall and tells her that she's going to fail everything and her obviously right now her biggest fear is failure. And so once she kind of gets like kind of thrown off by something, she can't like she can't go on. Like she has to be like calm down for a little bit before she can like try again or like end the lesson because she's just so like thrown off by everything so it's also one of the bogarts that's more like believable and like time sensitive like it's around the time where she would get results from some of her exams because she's written a few and like mcgonagall's a person who lives in the era who would be the one to tell her that it's not as crazy as like a giant spy <laughs> i don't know it's just like the most likely in that moment of the bogarts we hear about kind of so it's like more believable on top of her delicate state of mental stability yeah Hermione's hanging on by a thread but after this exam uh Ron and co run into uh Cornelius Fudge who basically tells them he's there for an execution Ron's just like uh what the fuck like there's an appeal and then they come like Ron you can't yell at the minister of magic I think it's particularly funny that the minister acknowledges Harry because he thinks Harry is valuable but he just does not acknowledge Hermione and Ron at all because he's like they're children they're not even people yeah which I, as a person who does not like children, understand. But he just, like, he's so shocked that Ron would almost have the audacity to talk to him. He's like, why is this thing talking to me? <laughs> like, I'm just, <laughs> like, kind of like if, like, a, a bird is squawking at you from a tree or, like, someone else's dog is barking. You're kind of like, 
what? He's just so caught off guard. He's like, I did nothing to you. But I think, of course, the main part of this chapter is uh, the divination examinations, which are also done privately, which I think is how all exams should be done. But basically, they just have to, they have to see something in the crystal ball. Or like, if they fail, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how this is marked. Well, no, I think a lot of them don't see things in the crystal ball. Like, I think as much as Trelawney wants them to see things she has sort of established that she thinks it's a gift that not everyone has so i feel like she probably gives the marks for trying yeah you know what i mean like for believing so for like it's a little bit like ink blot tests i believe i've said before where you look at it and you try and interpret something so even if nothing is seen if she sort of sees the usual smoke clouds in there and they're trying to describe vaguely what it could be like maybe it's a fish she's like okay they're like kind of trying and also because they don't fail, they pass. So and we know Ron saw nothing and wasn't believably lying. He just made it up. Yeah. Like Harry's lie is good in that he knows it's a true thing. He's like, oh, this, that's like a clever lie. And so I feel like she's like, okay, he saw a hippogriff. A hippogriff is relevant. He's not seeing the right thing, but it is pertinent. So like Harry's probably going to get more marks than Ron even though he didn't fully predict an event. Sorry, I just wanted to mention that I love that Trelawney told uh, the kids that if they told the next students what, what the exam was, that they would like have a terrible accident, like she told Neville. I think the funniest part is that they all believed her when she said that. I feel like Harry should have just predicted his own death. Like that, and Ron should have, everyone should have just predicted Harry's gonna die. Ron could have faked that so, like, whoa. It looks like Harry, 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 there's something after you. Harry, Harry! And just get emotional. He doesn't even have to describe it very well. He just needs to say Harry and sound traumatized. And she'd be like, full marks. What I find interesting is that Harry decides to make it up because that, that's what Ron did. And so he he just says he sees a hippogriff. And then is like all excited. Like, oh, you've seen like the the outcome of Hagrid's trial. Like, and she's trying to get him to like reveal this, like, get this blood. Yeah, this bloody, gory mess. And she's like, he's like, no. Is it dead? Is it decapitated? Is there blood everywhere? Is it gushing? Is Hagrid crying? Is there trauma? But Harry predicts Buckbeak flying away. So I have to say, uh, Harry is a seer, confirmed. It's easy to predict things when you have a control over the outcome. But there is a twist at the end of uh, Harry's uh, examination because Trelawney goes into a trance and actually does a real prophecy about the Dark Lord. He shall rise again, and his servants shall return, blah, blah, blah. But I was wondering if all seers have, like, they go into a trance and they don't remember doing a prophecy, or is it just Trelawney? I feel like it can't just be her, because we know that, like, the seer who writes their textbook, Cassandra something or another, uh, must be more aware or conscious of it because she was able to write a textbook on how she does it that is viewed as legitimate. Like, I think Cassandra is the same textbook writer that, like, they even look at that text later on when, like, the centaurs are teaching divination. So I think it's, like, she's seen as a somewhat legitimate. Like, clearly what she's describing is a legitimate process, and if they're able to copy it and she's able to be that self-aware that's happening, it can't entirely be unconscious for all seers. I just wonder if Trolley maybe blocks out her subconscious because she pretends that she's a seer, but then she actually is a seer, but she, like, I don't know, there's a part of herself that it doesn't fully believe in herself, so she's not aware of it when she's making, like, real prophecies. The rare, real prophecies would sort of delegitimize the feeling she gets for her fake ones or her made up ones and she's like I'd rather think I'm right all the time and be lying than be right very rarely yeah she kind of lives in her own reality yeah the standard by which she judges what is real or not is completely skewed if 
real prophecies are dramatically unconscious and she does a weird voice and like she isn't there for it yeah because yeah, she completely does not remember it harry is trying to tell her and she's like no 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 you must have fallen asleep but thinking of prophecies we talk there's a lot of prophecy talk later in the series that um basically prophecies are like only become like uh fulfilled when people act on them so like she predicts that like peter going back to voldemort but would peter have actually gone back to voldemort if it hadn't been for Sirius? starting all like this like chain reaction i always find that interesting to consider yeah although sirius started most of it before she made this particular prediction i feel like in the case of predictions where you are involved in the outcome it's really easy to skew it and i feel like like if you told devil he's going to fail his exam he's gonna fail it because he's so stressed about the possibility of failing it now like he has that control over it kind of like the power of the mind basically like placebo effect but I think if the pers- people involved in the outcome don't know the prediction is made, I don't think the prediction can have a play in the results. It is true because Voldemort only heard half of the original prophecy about Harry and he kind of fulfilled it by going after Harry. Harry leaves the exam kind of confused, but he can't really um, tell Ron and Hermione about it because at that moment they get a note from Hagrid saying that he lost the appeal and Buck Biggs being executed that night. <sighs> Poor Buck. I do wonder what would have happened if Harry had actually, like, told Dumbledore or something about this, like, strange prophecy. But I mean, Dumbledore's probably like, oh, wow, fun, another chance for Harry to learn about not dying by almost dying. Good luck out there, Harry. Don't forget you have the invisibility cloak. Why don't you go visit Hagrid? Like, classic Harry business. Classic Dumbledore manipulation. I do love this moment where uh, Harry's kind of being like, oh, if only we had the invisibility cloak and Hermione goes off and get it. And Ron's just like, Hermione, like, what's going on with you? You're just like doing all these things out of character and like being cool. It's totally out of character because it's breaking the rules and it's risky. But it's also on the other side in character for her to be like, there is a problem. I will come up with a solution. I will solve it. I will bring them the solution. It's like sort of the same thing she does kind of with the firebolt, but like, this time with the end results being something they all mutually wanted. She's like, they can't come up with a solution. I'll just solve it and hand them the results, you know? And like in this case, because it's something they all wanted, it's beneficial and she's gonna get credit for it rather than criticized for it. Yeah, but they uh, go down to Hagrid's and are having like, you know, tea with them, despite the fact that Hagrid like cannot pour anything. He's like trying to be composed in front of them, but he's just like, shaking and just he's an emotional wreck i can't imagine yeah what he's going through it's heartbreaking it's so heartbreaking for him yeah and it's so sad that like none of their efforts came to fruition the whole thing is tragic it's it's probably one of the like less thought about elements of the series as total but like it's such a miscarriage of justice for such an innocent it's just like it's a lot to handle especially as an animal lover like i'm like that we all know who's it's like there's no bad dogs there's just bad owners you know what I mean? Like, someone should have been keeping closer eye on Buckbeak. Draco shouldn't have been harassing Buckbeak. Buckbeak is a perfectly delightful hippogriff. Speaking of innocence, uh, Hermione finds scabbers at Hagrid's, so Crookshank was innocent the whole time. A twist! <laughs> she finds him in the milk jug, which makes me wonder, like, when they say milk jug, do they mean, like, glass milk bottles, like, that used to get delivered back in, like, old-timey England? Or do they mean milk jug, like, a proper, like, plastic one that we would put, like, a a quart of milk in here in Canada where milk comes in bags. Because I'm picturing it the Canadian way, like plastic, handle. 
they don't I don't think they have baked milk in uh <laughs> England. What I was picturing was is that they usually reference like tea cups and stuff. So I'm picturing like like a classic tea set where they have those little jugs, but Hagrid obviously has a giant one because he's a giant. <laughs> okay. I I wonder how long Scabbers was in there. Like, I wonder how, if Peter, like, went to hide one day because it was raining and the cat was after him and then, like, fell into it from a, a higher shelf or, like, if Hagrid moved it and he got stuck underneath, like, it was upside down on the shelf. Like, is he starving? Is he hungry? Is he traumatized? Yeah. Who knows what Peter was doing? Because I feel like he obviously faked his death, so he had to, like, find somewhere else to be that's not in the Gryffindor dorms or really, ideally not in the castle so, like, someone could find him. But also somewhere away from Crookshanks. But I feel like Hagrid always has weird creatures around his uh, place. So I'm like, is that the best place to hide? He could have gotten eaten by a dragon. Yeah, or like by Buckbeak or something. <laughs> That's how the series ends. <laughs> that would have been a fun twist. Buckbeak eats Peter. He deserves it, but... <laughs> Scabbers is, you know, there. And we don't really get much time to dwell on it because they see the executioner and the ministry people coming over. So Hagrid, so you know, he's trying to be kind of responsible adult and he's like you know he's like you know you guys can't be here you'll get in trouble and i don't want you seeing this because it's gonna be terrible so go back to the castle and despite the fact that hermione's like crying they want to stay with him but you know dumbledore's gonna be there and he's all about dumbledore would would go dumbledore i think it's nice this is one of the few moments where the staff a member of staff hogwarts actually sincerely just cares about the mental well-being of these children like, they're like, they, they'll see him die, and that would be sad and maybe traumatizing for the children. I don't want them to see that. I mean, it's a little goofy when you think that Harry watched his parents be murdered in front of him. Like, he's seen a lot. But it's nice that Hagrid actually, in this moment, cares about the children's psyche. Yeah. Hagrid has his moments. Like, he obviously isn't, like, a fully functional adult, but who is? But he, you know, he has his moments where he tries to be, you know, the adult in the situation. I think Dumbledore would have wanted Harry there. I feel like Dumbledore would be like, if Harry is under a visibility cloak, forced to stay silent and watch the government kill an innocent creature, he's going to be less trustful of the government and more trustful of me because I'm holding Hagrid's hand when it goes down. You know? Evil Dumbledore. He's the master of puppets. But uh, the trio are leaving, but they keep kind of having to stop because Peter, or guys, scappers at this point because we don't know he's Peter yet, is just trying to escape and Ron's having all this trouble. And I'm wondering, is he, does he sense that Sirius is, like, nearby? Uh, he might sense that. Or he might just be like, no, I don't want to go back with Ron. That cat is going to eat me. <laughs> yeah, where he yeah he just knows that something bad's going to happen. It's almost the end of the school year, and that is when Voldemort likes to attack Harry. So, you know, after he writes his, ex his exams, you know. Honestly, he might be a serial killer, but at least Voldemort respects Harry's education. Yeah, he values his education, and education's important to him. But uh, we end the chapter with it, it seeming like Buckbeak has been executed, and it really just goes to show, like, this is, like, their first-hand look at, like, corruption of the justice system, which is a pretty big theme in the Harry Potter series. Yeah. Absolutely. The things that you were like kind of raised to trust aren't actually like they're not just at all. Yeah. They learn about bribery. They learn about bias. They learn about manipulation of public officials. It's uh, a harsh face of reality. But on the bright side, they also 
are going to learn that, you know, you can find sneaky ways of overcoming those things like magic. But this is kind of our last chapter before things get really serious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of unintentional, <laughs> but it worked out. But uh, yeah, things are going to get um, serious in the next few chapters as the plot really uh, hits its climax. <laughs> yeah, do you have any kind of, uh, I guess, last thoughts about this chapter before we wrap up? Any last thoughts? Um, it reminds me of having exams to write as a student and gives me a lot of, like, it reminds me how horrible that was. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the stress, the trauma. Uh, it also makes me wonder, like, I hope every exam has a practical and a written section, because even though I think practical is more important, I think there needs to be an option for people to still get marks who memorize things, but maybe aren't as talented, you know? I think it'd be good to have a written section as well. Yeah, I just feel like this book's kind of really opening us up into the corruption of the wizarding world. It's already kind of stirred this early, which I don't really think I picked up on reading this as a kid, but like just seeing like like the gross injustice of like what's happening to Buckbeak, who is completely innocent in everything, and how like it doesn't really matter because it's just the way like the world is at this point, and kind of feel like that's growing up being like 13, 14 and really seeing like how the world starts to affect you as you're starting to become a teenager slash adult. And the inclusion of things like judges and executioners does a good job of doing what each book does, which is expanding the wizarding world a little bit more. Like we got to know a bit kind of about like auras, a little bit about wizard justice when Hagrid was falsely arrested in the previous book. But in this book, we're made aware of like, oh, there's whole trials, there's judges, like it's expanding the government as an entity in the wizarding world and gives us like a bigger picture and fills in more of the blanks sort of on the map that is the wizarding world. But uh, let's wrap this up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Potter Revisited. And we'll be back next time to discuss chapter 17 of Prisoner of Azkaban, Cat, Rat, and Dog. You can follow us on uh, <laughs> Potter Revisited on social media or email us at potterrevisitedpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.